Hello, and welcome to the fourth ever English Network podcast. It's me, Ted. I'm Emily. And I'm Alex. Thank you for joining us. So today we're going to be looking at the poem Bayonet Charge by Ted Hughes. And Al's just going to run us through with a summary now. Off you go, Al. History man on the spot. Okay, so uh, <laughs> Bayonet Charge is a conflict poem. The three we've looked at previously were definitely power, power poems, but now we're looking at um, descriptions of war and descriptions of battle. Um, the... The poem is loosely based, we can assume it's kind of set in World War One, um, with a soldier going over the top, out the trench, into no man's land. Um, and the, the poem kind of tracks his his fear in that moment, but also the way that he feels he, when he's reflecting on the kind of propaganda that he's been exposed to. Um, and he's, he has a kind of like uh, an awakening as to um, kind of like his position, how he ended up where he was, mm. um, and starts to maybe question some of the assumptions that he had. Um, before uh, before he became a soldier. Um, and just a quick note on Ted Hughes. He wasn't a soldier himself, so we said, we've spoken before about being really careful to distinguish between the speaker and the poet. Um, but Ted Hughes, his, Hughes's father did serve in World War One, mm-hmm. was a soldier, um, and it could be that he was he was exploring um, some of the some of his experiences through this poem. Um, and also, a really important th- thing to remember with Ted Hughes is he was he was obsessed with nature. It, it went all the way through his poetry. Um, Much and, like a romantic poet. Are you well, yeah. Say? No, no. I'm, I'm, I was just holding off that. Desperately uh, <laughs> really making yeah. the link. Um, but he, yeah, so so he he looks at the the kind of effects of conflict on the individual. Um, but also starts to look at things like uh, its effect on nature as well. Definitely. No, and I really like this poem, and I think we've got some really interesting poems coming up, which all kind of give us different insights into war and into conflict, into man's inhumanity to man. Very excitingly. Uh, so, Em, you're going to start us off with the first bit of language analysis. Absolutely. I think Al just talked about how this could be their soldier's awakening, and that ties in quite nicely to what I'm going to say about the start of the poem. <coughs> So we're sort of thrown straight into the action as a reader with that abrupt adverb suddenly, almost as if this story starts mid-anecdote, the idea that there may potentially have been many battles prior to this. This is just one snapshot of one speedy story. So we have the adverb suddenly. Suddenly he awoke and was running raw. Mm -hmm. I just want to look at that idea of him being awoke at the start of the poem, that is he... And to clarify, that's not in the modern political sense of being woke. No, no, no. no. Although there is, some, there, is, woke. there is some uh, similarity, like the idea of that you feel that you're awoke, you, you're aware of something. Ah, so the ah. soldier is woke. Interesting. Interesting yeah. interpretation. Every day is a school day, mm-hmm. except for Saturday and Sunday. But this is a Saturday when we're recording this. Sorry to interrupt. Anyway, let's continue. <laughs> so yeah, we do have, don't we, that use of past tense used in this poem which I find really interesting usually past tense is quite narrative quite reflective but because of the pace of the poem we kind of don't get that sense of reflection as much um, through the use of past tense it's interesting that we are dropped straight into the action there and we're almost given that speed of the charge itself remembering that the title of the poem is the bayonet charge mm-hmm. and whereas say we'll come on to comparisons of charge of the light brigade later on I think but Whereas that is a charge which takes place over many, many sort of leagues, as it says in the poem, a long distance. I think this is a charge which is over in a matter of seconds, yeah. really, that I do straight over the top. Mm-hmm. Looking at the use of the word awoke, is it literal, metaphorical? Was he woken up in the middle of sleep and charged over the top? Was he commanded to do that? Or was it more metaphorical, the sense he awoke to the real reality of war? He awoke to the lies and the mistruths that he'd believed from propaganda that he was fed sort of before he entered the war. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think Alex sort of hit the nail on the head when he said it's about that true reality of going over the top um, and that moment of the soldier's realisation. We've got the repetition of the use of the adjective raw as well, which I find really interesting in that quote. So suddenly he awoke and he was running raw. In raw seemed hot khaki. And I think, again, this this likens itself to the speed of it all. You know, raw having connotations of being unfinished or unprepared or unprocessed even. Um, the idea that he wasn't ready for this. He wasn't correctly sort of trained, potentially. You know, was he a raw recruit? Was he inexperienced? But then we've got almost the literal interpretation of that adjective raw, the idea that the seams of his khaki, the seams of his new clothing weren't sewn over properly. So they were causing him physical pain. They were causing him a wound. We often think of raw wounds. So you've got that double meaning of that use of raw. Um, the, the interpretation I most like to go with with the use of the repetition of raw there is that his emotions here are raw. Mm-hmm. They're not polished. They're strong. They've come to the surface. They're no longer disguised. And I think a lot of what we'll talk about in later quotes in the poem is about this raw emotion that the soldier is sort of battling with. Yeah, I I think that's a really, really important point. So I think just in terms of structure like that, there's an instantaneous quality to this poem where you are just thrust straight into the action. Mm -hmm. Um, It reminds me, again, quite a nerdy reference, but uh, Battlefield, uh, the World War I version, uh, you start straight off in the middle of a charge, very similar to this, mm. and this just throws you right in at the deep end. And that analysis of raw is really interesting as well. It always makes me think of kind of like a slab of meat yeah. that he's offered up. He's like this raw, he's the latest sacrifice, mm. just to kind of be consumed by the, the machinery of war. Um, I think you've got something next for us, Dal? Yeah, um, just further on in that stanza, he, he, Hughes uses a simile that um, he lugged a rifle numb as a smashed arm. Um, and I think this... This poem has a few similes that you can you can really get some um, some really meaningful analysis from. Um, so if we look at this comparison of the rifle with a smashed arm, um, it tells us a lot about the way that the soldier, first of all, the way that he used to view himself, um, and the way that he, after he's in this kind of like terrifying experience, how that that view of, of self has changed. So if we if we look at this comparative vehicle, it's a smashed arm. Um, the rifle was once something vital to him. It was a part, like a part of his body, um, and you and you see images of soldiers when they're training. They, they're flinging their rifles around. Friend, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's the idea is that um, when you when they when they do all that stuff with the rifle, it's because they need to be able to keep hold of it yeah. in, in battle. It needs to be it's like an really extension pressing. of their body. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so that so but the fact that that is now smashed, mm-hmm. it's numb. Um, it's no longer something that's uh, that's useful to him. It's no some, it's no longer something that's part of him. It's broken and it's completely useless. So he's just he's just kind of like dragging it along. And that 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 verb lugged is really interesting because it's it's not talking about um, it doesn't give you an image of something that's competent or strong. It's yeah. something that he's dra- he's dragging it around with him, and it's no longer something that he's he's feeling particularly. Uh, yeah, at home with. Yeah, he was just really kind of attacking the the kind of the romantic notion of a charge here. Like that, that mm-hmm. verb lugged is so clunky and so clumsy. Yeah, yeah. Removes Absolutely. any romantic notions you might have. And that idea, you can almost imagine this young recruit, this young soldier being given his khaki uniform for the first yeah. time, being gifted that um, rifle. And then suddenly those two things that he thought would help him on the battlefield are now burdens to him. Mm-hmm. You've got the khaki seams actually causing him physical pain. And now you've got him dragging that rifle along. I always see that lugging as sort of a metaphor for his patriotism yeah. almost. Patriotism was the thing that spurred him on yeah. initially in the war, but now it's a burden to him, something he's dragging Access around with baggage, him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think just on that as well, I really like the adjective smash there. It seems, 
there's like a needless quality to it. It's kind of like just wantonly included. It's kind of like mm. like a smashed arm, and yeah. it almost makes me think of like the, the needless violence that is war itself in many aspects. And like, yeah. there's so much like friendly fire, like accidents, yeah. like yeah. people, you know, General George S. Patton uh, yeah. died in a car crash. But there's the, all these like disastrous, violent things that are associated with war. It's just so needless and kind of strophily violent. Yeah. Um, and that adjective smashed just seems so uh, mm. so random almost for me. Um, so the quotation I'm going to be looking at next is just at the end of that first stanza. The patriotic tear that had brimmed in his eye, sweating like molten iron from the centre of his chest. So there's this idea, yeah, this patriotic tear that he has. So the first thing I want to look at is, is that word tear. So obviously there's this, this image of you know, he's this tear, this noun, he's almost, he's crying with patriotism, you know, he's kind of this, he signed up, he was idealistic, he was noble, he believed in the cause of the war, he believed in the, the righteousness of his nation and the cause. But also there's this idea of also it being a homonym, tear and tear, you know, being spelt the same, and there's, there's a double meaning there. Is there actually a tear in the fabric of his patriotism? Has he lost that idealism? Has, has, he, has the war lost its sheen of appeal for him? Mm-hmm. Is he now, you know, awake to the needless violence and the needless quality of this. And then as we go on in that line, we've got, you know, we've got the the verb brimmed in his eye, the idea that he was at one stage once like brimming with patriotism, yeah. like full to the brim with idealism. Um, and then it's a really weird and strange word selection in, this, in the, the following line, the last line of that first stanza. Sweating like molten iron. So, so why has Hughes cho- chosen, you know, that verb sweating? I mean, it, it almost it almost seems like he's hinting that the eye is sweating or where he's sweating, and that's quite strange. It really juxtaposes with uh, the quite poetic language uh, of the previous line. This is this is quite clunky, and it's quite a quite a strange image for him to use. Um, and as we go on, we're looking at the simile, uh, like molten iron from the centre of his chest. So this idea of you know, when I think of molten iron, I'm almost thinking of like kind of you know the Earth's crust, these happening things happening beneath the centre, and this idea that there's this molten iron from the centre of his chest. For me, I always think of the idea of it makes it seem like there's something within him. Yeah. There's that, like this like a surge of adrenaline, perhaps that's making him sweat. There's this excitement of the battle, and when I'm thinking of kind of like the Earth's crust and this molten iron that's within him, it makes me think there's almost a primordial um, violence that's coming from within him. With that yeah, simile, yeah, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. It's it's like an image of catharsis, isn't it? We're talking about kind of um, expelling some like a yeah. something that's negative. Um, so you could talk about how the fact that. The patriotic tear itself was that negative influence, which yeah. is now kind of like uh, again in this cathartic moment, this this the 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 action, the violence. Um, <coughs> that's now something that's leaving him. It's coming, and it comes comes out in molten eye and gives that image of it being a, a painful experience, yeah. but something almost something that was ne- inevitable and, yeah. and necessary for the individual. I always see that sort of that hot imagery there, that idea of anger. You know, yeah. I think he's almost mm. burning up. He's boiling from over the center, with the, yeah. like the anger from his heart, like. He's invested in patriotism, but now again with that oxymoronic patriotic tear, you know, patriotism is supposed to be something that gives him pride, that gives him purpose, but now it is that very patriotism that is causing him pain. It won't Mm -hmm. come out. He won't Mm -hmm. let it come out now. It's only brimming in his eye. Yeah, absolutely. And the patriotic tear that had brimmed, so the idea that, yeah, this is kind of, uh, we could say pluperfect tense, or certainly the, you know, the past tense. This is something that's no longer present. This this is something that's gone now. He doesn't have this patriotism anymore. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that so loads of things there. Yeah, we've got the, the homonym. We've got the past tense had. We've got the simile. Loads that you can really draw and analyze from that. Um, and that leads us on to our next quotation. Uh, we're looking at uh, what line is it? Uh, in what cold clockwork of the stars and the nations was he the hand pointing that second? 
think you're going to tell us about that, Em. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Firstly, we've got that rhetorical question. Okay, So when you're looking <laughs> at the use of Hughes' language, that fact that he is now questioning himself, he's questioning his purpose in the war, he's questioning his position in the war, and potentially beginning to question those who have told him war will be a certain way through propaganda. Um, I find the alliteration here really interesting, cold clockwork. Uh, that cursed sound creating that sort of mechanical, yeah. robotic notion, the idea that, you know, the government who sent him to war didn't care about the emotional turmoil he would experience on the battlefield. It's sort of that robotic, mechanical cog. The government, in this extended metaphor, being the cogs which control the war without really doing any of the work themselves. You know, yeah. they do the turning. But it's that second hand and the soldier himself feels he's the second hand. The second hand being the hand on the clock, of course, mm -hmm. which does the running around after yeah. all the other hands. You know, the second hand is the one that does that labour. And it's just that idea of control, isn't it, from behind the cogs underneath the government or, in fact, even religion is what he yeah. begins to question here. The whole it's kind, kind of, of industrial war complex yeah. that he's just caught up as a tiny cog in the part of. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's funny actually. That kind of like you could read that both ways. You could see that you could see the cogs as being in control, but then there's that there's that idea of being being a cog in a machine and being mm -hmm. that tiny little piece that yeah. maybe it doesn't have a huge impact on the whole. But I like that as well because it's talking about um, it's kind of like it, it's a it's a nod towards fatalism. So he's got this idea that uh, when he when he refers to stars as well as nations. Yeah. Um, so you you've already covered the bit about the governments and about kind of like. And with World War One, especially, you know, this was this was almost like a it was like a game between mm -hmm. kings. It yeah. was just like yeah. it was just kind of it, it was almost like personal rivalry played out on uh, on you know in on on the stage of war uh, with millions and millions of normal people, other people who who suffer. Um, you know, just in World War One, like kings and queens being related. You know, yeah. like yeah. the Queen of England and uh, well, the King of England then. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 really, really quickly again, it, it the, especially with the start of World War One. Um, it was an issue. It was it was basically a chain reaction because of treaties. Mm -hmm. So these these nations who are all kind of like similarly powered, similarly positioned, uh, they'd all had treaties that if one attacks the other, will join war, the war, yeah. and will join the war, and will join the war. Mm -hmm. um, and it was only because one man uh, assassinated the Archduke of um, Austria Hungary that kind of sparked that chain reaction. You know, Russia gets involved, and, yeah. and then France, France, uh, Germany declares war on Russia. France declares war on Germany. Britain declares war on Germany. And before you know it, you know you've the got one of the you've got the <laughs> most um, horrific conflict of all time up to, that, up to that point. And there's this tiny soldier, like a second hand, exactly. caught up in all of yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Really, so really so it's that it's that change in focus between the individual and 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 states. Um, and then he's he yeah he so and then but then another contextual point with Hughes, I think I think he was quite interested in astrology. Um, so. So you and me now, that's like horoscopes, isn't it? It's kind of like, uh, if you if you are born at a certain time, yeah. then this is going to happen for you. Mm -hmm. um, I think he probably went a little bit deeper than that. But um, he, <laughs> that's kind of hinted towards here where he's talking, where he's looking around and thinking, this this, this soldier in this poem, he's, he's looking around and reflecting on the situation that he's in. Yeah, it wasn't what his is fate. It? Yeah, is what it is his it? destiny yeah, to exactly. die here? That yeah, kind so of it's, thing. it's destiny. How, it, how is the, the cold movements of destiny? And again, you've got this mechanical image in your head, um, with with that cold clockwork, how is it that he's ended up here in this mm -hmm. moment? And he's and he's kind of he's feeling probably feeling a bit sorry for himself in that. Uh, Quite a philosophical thought for someone who's charging with a bayonet <laughs> towards a head. Really. Well, I suppose he's having well, his yeah. life flash before his Definitely. eyes, perhaps. Yeah. And it, it makes me, you know, it links back for me with the prelude and the epiphany that the narrator has, or 
Wordsworth has in that poem. He kind of has this realization yeah. that this yeah. great truth is yeah. best in the universe. Yeah. And here, I think, you know, this narrator has, the speaker has a realization of his, his insignificance in the war and how he's been caught up in this, in the machinery of this war yeah. in quite, you know, an almost literal sense. Um, uh, that sense of he really feels he's a lack of agency is a lack of control yeah um, and I suppose you would feel that if you're being forced to march towards uh, machine guns with a yeah know. yeah and I think this 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 whole second stanza you can you can call it the the soldier's existential crisis so after the after he has this um, kind of realization of, of the of his own bewilderment and the cold clockwork um, he's Hughes goes on to write this kind of quite lengthy and clunky simile where he says he was running like a man who has jumped in, up in the dark and runs listening between his footfalls for the reasons of his still running. So what he's, I think if we're talking about what an existential crisis is, um, it's this idea that um, so you are exposed to something which makes you question your own existence and your own meaning and why, you know, what your, your whole life basically. And considering that in the first stanza, we know that the, the the soldier had really bought into um, the propaganda, which was so prevalent at that time. He bought into that myth, that myth, the abstract idea of war um, and what it is to fight for for your country and what it is to be a true patriot, and that um, and buying into that nationalistic ideal, which you know it was so important in persuading millions of people to to go go and fight. Um, but he, those abstract ideas in the in the in the moment of that of that fear. They fall away, mm-hmm. um, and so. But if you think, if you think, try and kind of empathise with the, with the soldier here. He's bought in so completely to that to that myth of being a soldier, that ideal. It's like an archetype of being yeah. a soldier. It's his. It's everything who he is. Yeah. And yet, when he finds in the moment that he can't, maybe he can't live up to That's that ideal, or, or the fear is too much for him to really function in the way that he would want. You know, we've already spoken about the the the, the rifles now something alien and separate yeah. to him, where it was once something that integral. He, he thought was integral. Um, his his existence is he's questioning his own existence. He's questioning his own meaning. Um, so you can definitely say in the second stanza that the, the soldier is having uh, an exis- a crisis. Of, uh, oh, really? an I like nature. that idea that he's he's listening for a reason. It's almost yeah. like he wants someone else to give him that comfort, that reassurance. I think so much of this image of a charge um, would be seen in terms of the noise, the danger of it all, the excitement potentially. But here we have almost like the innermost thoughts as if all noise, all everything yeah. else going around him has been blocked out and all he can concentrate on is his own reason for being and, there. And it's disorientating for the reader as well. So yeah. it's kind of like you, you see the, the, his own disorientation in the fact that he knows he doesn't know who he is anymore or what he's, what he's for or why he's there. Um, but the reader is kind of like, you, you go from, you know, like we said, we're dropped into the battle and then a second, like the, the second uh, stanza. Now we're in this guy's head, yeah. um, and he's not—he's not—he's not in the moment anymore. He's way off somewhere else in his own consciousness, um, and that's there's that kind of like flip in the, in terms of the structure between the moment and his own kind of introspective reflections. And, ju- and just I think something you always see with really strong responses uh, for kind of poetry essays is that ability to really explore every word and significance and define all these things and taking listening as an example I think that's such a carefully chosen word like such a passive idea that while all of this is going on he's listening for his reason like when you listen you're you're not doing anything Mm. so he's almost kind of like not praying but waiting for some reason some justification for why he's about to die and of course, as he's listening, he doesn't hear that reason. Nothing comes. Yeah. Well, it kind of does in the third stanza, but it's nothing that he was told that mattered before. Absolutely. Um, so now we're going on to the uh, start of the third stanza. 
And I think Em's going to talk us through uh, the language describing a strange incident with a, with a hare, which yeah. is different from a rabbit. It's an important point. <laughs> of course. So I think it's important to remember, like Alex introduced, that nature is a key theme in a lot of Hughes's poetry. Many of his poems use sort of foxes, other aspects of nature in their titles. So we see a movement away from that here in that the focus of this poem is the effect on the individual soldier. However, we still do see the effect that warfare has on nature itself. So just at the end of the previous stanza there, we hear about the shot slashed furrows throwing up a yellow hair. Um, so firstly, that idea that we were talking about before reasons for fighting, perhaps governments had persuaded people, you know, they were fighting for land. But then the stark reality here is that the land is being destroyed by the war itself. You know, the furrows are damaged by the shots. We know that, you know, it took many, many decades for these um, fields to return back to their former state after warfare had taken place on them. And then we've got that image of nature itself being caught up in the crossfire, as it were. So we've got the image of this yellow hair being hit potentially by a shot and it rolls like a flame and crawls in a threshing circle, its mouth wide, open silent, its eyes standing out. I think it's really interesting that Hughes sort of pauses his poem and takes the, the movement away from the inner turmoil of the protagonist here. And now we've got the innocent bystander of nature being damaged by the mm. conflict. Um, and you've got the interpretation too that the yellow hair could be metaphorical for mustard gas. Yep. So it could be this idea that mustard gas thrown from nowhere came. That could be the thing that then leads to this individual soldier's death or ambiguous death, we could say in this poem, because we're not entirely sure. Um, but I find most interesting about the image of the hair is that it's in a threshing circle. Threshing is such a violent image. That idea that it's, it's convulsing. And mm -hmm. I think it's almost euphemistic, I think, to describe the agonising death of an animal here. And I think mm -hmm. it's Hughes almost pausing to make us think that that is how many, many soldiers died yeah. with their eyes open, you know, in that threshing, painful, agonising way. Um, it may well be how the protagonist of this poem ends up at the end, after the poem, because we mm -hmm. don't actually find out. <laughs> Um, and I think it's a really stark image. It's, it's violent. It's quite brutal. It strips, um, like, it strips it of its dignity, really. Absolutely. It? And I think there's there's a real interesting metaphor there with its eyes standing out. Now, obviously, you've got the literal interpretation that it's in so much pain that its eyes have sort of expanded, and you get that image in death, that brutal death, where your eyes literally pop out, and that's brutal enough. But what I find even more interesting is this idea that even the nature is now can see the truth. You know, it's had its eyes opened to the reality of war. Just as the soldiers had its eyes open, that they've been manipulated, they've been lied to. You know, yeah. propaganda promised them bravery, promised them... Home by Christmas. Oh, absolutely. And and this is the reality. Um, and, and so, and then what he, the narrator decides to do in this moment, and this is where I think the narrator kind of finds his feet, um, in a sense. He plunged past with his bayonet toward the green hedge. So... It goes, he's running straight at the guns at this moment. And I want to really zoom in on that word plunged, because then that's really deliberately and strategically chosen by Hughes. So, you know, if something's plunging, it's kind of falling without much control and agency. So in one sense, we have the idea that this man is, you know, he's disoriented, he's lost his rationale, he's lost his reasoning, he doesn't know why he's there. He's falling into a despair, falling into despair here and giving up what he previously thought. But for me, I think what the narrator almost discovers here is that here he is, and he, he, he thought he was, he was doing this for Queen, for King Country, and we're going to look at that 
quotation a second. I think the reason he finds is his survival instinct, is this anger, is this primordial rage, this, this need to live. So he just, I think he plunges, he goes away from the facade of kind of humanity and civility, and he embraces kind of what's within him, which is a survival instinct, Absolutely. an animal. And he just, he falls back to that primordial state. It's like, right, I'm gonna live, I'm not gonna die. And he just embraces what's there, embraces that rage, embraces that terror, and just plunges straight at those guns. Yeah, yeah dazzling, but the dazzling with rifle fire, mm. I think that's a quote from the start, we kind of skim past that, but the idea that the hedges were where the enemy was concealed, you yeah. know, hedges mm. usually connote in a home for something, like a small animal, and, yeah. and nature itself, you know, the green hedge, it seems almost idealistic to be running towards that, but remember yeah. the guns are waiting for him. And I, I don't know whether he's making that decision not to die. I think actually here is a decision where he decides to die. Well, I think he doesn't have control. That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the thing about soldiers, isn't it? You are, we talked about instrumentality last time, where, you, where um, so objectification through instrumentality, where you're used for the, you, where the objectifier uses you for a purpose. Yeah. And soldiers are objectified. They are, they're, sim they're simply tools in the, in the yeah. eyes of their objectifiers Chess pieces, to be yeah. to be to achieve a certain goal and if you talk about plunge his lack of control yeah um that really that's basically you can see that he has no control over over that situation he is being controlled like, there's no there's no way back you know you you, you retreat you get shot as yeah. a deserter Absolutely. you can only go forward um and that that kind of moment where it's kind of it dawns on him or maybe i guess he knew it all along that's quite a that's quite a powerful uh, moment in the poem, I think, where it's it's just that that, that acceptance yeah. of his own death. So just so a brief uh, nerdy reference. So one of my favorite TV shows is Band of Brothers, and there's a there's a, a, a captain in there, like a soldier, who all the other soldiers are afraid of because he seems to be the most brave man, this most insane warrior. Uh, yeah, yeah. And at one moment he's chatting with this private, and the private asks him, "How do you be so brave?" And he says, "Because I'm dead." Mm. Yeah. You need to realise that you're dead. <laughs> this is a whole war to yeah. you go yeah. into it. That yeah. You need to have the mentality that you're, your life's already over. You just need to be as useful as you can before you die. That'll make you a better soldier and make you a better man. And I think there's an interpretation here. Is this he man, did survive all that guy then. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he did survive. He made it to the Vietnamese War space. and retired. <laughs> um, but he, does he, has he got that primordial drive to stay alive, which is kind of the argument I've made, or is it actually that he's resigned himself to his mm. fate, that he is but an instrument for destruction and of destruction. Um, and I think you can go either way there. Yeah, I think it's way. interesting how he picked up before we were talking about he's, he's questioning the reasons of his still running. And mm -hmm. you did well to pick up on the practicalities that he had no choice. You know, he loses all autonomy there because had he turned back, he would have been shot for cowardice. So, yeah. you know, there really was no choice. And I think that is the moment where they realise they've been manipulated. They've been put in this <coughs> situation. There is no way back, literally and metaphorically. Suddenly he's awake. Absolutely. Um, so I think the quotation we're going to look at now is king, honour, human dignity, etc. And I'm not going to lie, there was some some grappling between us at who got to explore this quotation. But yeah, I think Emma's I been on fine form today, so uh, if you do the This honors. is the poem I know, to be fair, so I'm <laughs> pleased to have an input today. Um, and I'm not in Lisbon for once, so that helps. Um, so we've got king, honour, human dignity, etc. Drop like luxuries in a yelling alarm. I think Alex will come on to talk about the simile in more detail. I just want to explore the use of that asyndetic list there. So an asyndetic list being a list with commas and no ands, effectively, if you didn't know for that terminology. The asyndetic list, and you see in the list this overuse of the semantic field of propaganda. So you almost have all of these abstract nouns, king, honour, human dignity, listed. Um, I think the list itself has an effect in that 
those words bombard the reader there just like he's been bombarded with those abstract nouns through propaganda posters through those lies that he was uh, perpetuated with almost before he went into war um, and I think it's really telling that those ideas are abstract nouns and they're abstract on the battlefield mm. you know King isn't there helping him he certainly isn't an experiencing with, much honour with King because like the king is not an abstract noun but the idea it's the idea of yeah. king isn't it it's the abstract concept of for king and country. Fight for king and country, absolutely. So, so, so what, it's more like, it, maybe it's more like what the crown represents rather than the individual himself. Well, I think that's yeah. what he lists, doesn't he? He lists yeah. those things that before he went to battle, we imagine were his main reasons for going, you know, fighting for king, fighting for honour, gaining human dignity. And I even find the order of that list so telling, you know. Mm -hmm. Human dignity was placed last. It always was. You know, even propaganda probably placed that last. And certainly in this moment on the battlefield, his own personal human dignity comes last. And... Yeah. The soldier realises here all those things were idealistic. You know, perhaps they caused the war themselves. We talked before about governments and kings mm -hmm. causing the conflict and then not being there to pick up the pieces. So we see him then dismiss all those things that he used to be so persuaded by. Could and we you... see that with the dismissive, etc. There's, um, yeah, like you say, though, it's almost that rallying call. You can always yeah. hear it in his head. King, honour, human dignity. But the words well, he dismisses it, etc. They're hollow, they're futile. And there's that real anti-climax there with the etc. He cannot be bothered to list any more of those things. Blah, 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 etc, etc, etc. Yeah, he's yeah. just kind of just given up Absolutely. Um, on all that, all, that, all that jazz. Yeah, it's just not important to him. Um, and, that's, and this is kind of reinforced in the next line where, where um, Hughes compares them to luxuries. So these high-minded concepts, he, he compares them to luxuries. So we looked at before about how the smashed arm suggests a number of things about um, his new, uh, his view of his rifle, but it used to be close and is now something that's separate and, and useless to him. You can do the same thing here with um, with luxuries. So if if he's saying that these things that used to be so important, he's able to just drop them, mm -hmm. drop them com completely. Um, and when you think about what luxuries are in, in our life, you were talking about that primal, I thought it was interesting, that primordial feel or yeah. primeval feel, I want to say like a primal visceral yeah. idea um, of just wanting to survive. When it comes to high-minded concepts, those things are just not important. Um, so the, they are basically superficial. Um, They're superfluous to him. You could say that they, they were kind of vacuous concepts that didn't have any substance. Yeah. Um, and then also that they're completely arbitrary. Yeah. You know, the king, honour, human dignity, they're subjective concepts made yeah. by humans to, to kind of like, um, they're, they're constructs, aren't they, that are used to persuade people to fight. You're born um, in another country, you have a different king, you have a different god. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really yeah, exactly. Either way, you're going to end up meeting a battlefield. And uh, yeah, so it suggests that the, these that this idealism that is seen as such a positive, even in... Even after the after wars, like after the fact, it's seen as that positive. It's mm -hmm. that kind of like you, it's making a, a noble sacrifice. Yeah. Um, but Hughes's message here, this is Hughes's message, not the English Network podcast message. Message is that maybe <laughs> we are neutral on war, yeah, either for or against. Yeah. The conflict itself is kind of is always just a tragic waste, and there is no yeah. nobility, and there is no. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing glorious about it, and it's never. It's never a good thing. It can. It's just. And and again, sorry to go back to this simile. Um, these high-minded concepts—they're just—they're just tricks. They're tricks to get, the, get yeah. young men to fight, to get people to kill in the name of—in in the name of what? Something that they can never really truly understand. But just on that point as well, I'd really like to contrast the verbs dropped and plunged. So he was plunging, and I think he found his primordial instinct to survive. But now he's dropping these luxuries. Mm. Yeah. So actually, the idea that he's dropping them—it gives him agency. And I think in the stanza we see he does take on control. 
and we're going to see this in the last line in a moment, but he takes back agency, he takes back control, he chooses... He or, chooses to dismiss yeah, that propaganda yeah, yeah. lie. He's back in control. He's, he's I think at this stage in the story, in the poem, he's found what he's fighting for. Um, yeah, I think we're almost returned to that idea from the start as well, that he's awoke because we've got that use of the drop. Like, look, she's in a yelling alarm. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I should have realised this all along. Now yeah. it's awoken me. I'm, I realise the truth. And, you know, it's that moment where he decides not to die for patriotism, but to die because that's what is inevitably going to happen to him anyway. Definitely. So uh, <clears throat> we're now going to look at the last line of the poem. Uh, his terrors... It's your favourite, isn't it, Ted? It is indeed. I think it's quite an important line. Uh, his terrors touchy dynamite. So with structure, and let's say when you're doing your unseen poem, just always remember, the first and last line of the poem are extraordinarily significant, right? Poets so carefully choose every single word and particularly in the opening and closing lines. So they're making really important decisions that affect tone and meaning. So his terrors touchy dynamite. And just to go back before that, um, to get out of that light blue cracking air, he wants to get out of the situation. He wants to kind of escape what's happening to him to kind of for this to be over one way or another. And he talks about his terrors touchy dynamite. So what I'd zoom in first of all is that is that pronoun his. So it's his terror. So he's taking ownership here. And again, this fits mm -hmm. in with this narrative I'm trying to push that he has agency now and he has control. He's owning this terror. This terror is something that's helpful for him. He's using this because it is this fight or flight instinct which, and this surge of adrenaline which helps him survive. You think as well, it's like he's just dropped all of that patriotic yeah. idealism. This is all he's got left. Actually, what he has on the battlefield, you know, patriotism itself would be a luxury to even yeah. cling to now. All he has and all he can own now is that terror. And, and just that sense of like, it, it's one of those quite confusing things. When you're caught in a dangerous situation, your body surges with adrenaline and you literally shake. So there's a real confusion sometimes between um, terror and the adrenaline that gives you and the excitement that gives you and then actual fear. So his body is going to be shaking. But is that with perhaps an element of enjoyment or is it with fear? But they're definitely that surge of adrenaline. So this terror is, is kind of taking over him. And then we go on to that, that metaphorical idea of dynamite. So, you know, let's explore the connotations of dynamite. So his terror has an explosive, quali explosive quality. It's something that's kind of just exploded within him, that's consumed him. But then also, you know, dynamite is something that has a, you know, has a fuse, which is supposed to work as a timer. So is it the idea that we all have dynamite within yeah. us, that, that in the right situation, this can be unleashed? If, where if you're facing this thing, the same as him, your terror would unleash you. You would turn into this kind of visceral, animal-like being that just wanted to survive. But then also, for fans of uh, the show Lost, if you've seen the episode uh, where they try and use uh, dynamite to blow up the hatch, dynamite is extraordinarily unstable. And while we think it has a fuse which sets it off at the right moment, if you even shake dynamite a little bit, it will explode on the spot. So is it actually this idea that the rage within us isn't something we can control and it can actually be unleashed at any moment? So that's the final word in the poem, um, dynamite. And I just think there's a you could really explore what he's saying about human nature in here and how we end up in these conflicts and how we deal with it. Nice. Uh, and yeah, that's just my, my last thought on language. I always just thought it meant it got blown up, but I well, like your interpretation. <laughs> I just want to talk about the use of Zazor in, in John as well in the poem. Um, and that's quite intentional. Like, this is a confusing poem. It's really clunky. It's it's difficult to read. We've said the word clunky about six times now, yeah. but, but it is. But, but I mean, that's, that's again, because I'm pushing a narrative. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's confusing to read and you can compare it so... You know, with the, the beautiful poetic language, some of the earlier poems that we've looked at, they're so smooth, they're so well written. And here the, the words are kind of falling one after the other. One line's going to the next. You're not certain whether or not he's sweating or his eyes are sweating. Mm. That could just be my, my, my own confusion. Um, but it's a confusing poem. And if you've ever seen footage of World War One, Peter Jackson's just released this phenomenal documentary where they've colorized and 
turn into yeah. 3D uh, footage from World War One. The charges they went on look farcical, okay? Because they're running through these fields which are full of mud, corpses, uh, craters where things have been exploded, trees which have been knocked over. And if you've ever, you know, Theresa May has fun running through wheat fields, but if you've ever had fun, <laughs> you know, perhaps at a festival or something like that, or being on a farm and you're trying to walk through these muddy fields, <laughs> it's impossible to walk through these fields, let alone to, to run. So you've got this guy firing a gun at you. So your movement is going to be very clunky. You are going to be lugging. And it is going to be this really disorienting, unromantic um, struggle to just get through this field. It's not yeah, a charge. Yeah. It's a... It's a heave to go back yeah. to the language of Wordsworth. Lugging. Yeah. Lugging. Um, so, yeah, I think this is orange on it. It gives it that clunky quality, which is a deliberate representation of the um, laborious process of actually just trying to get through this this, uh, this damn field. And it's worth saying with Sejora and, and in Jombaman, um, if you're talking about the Sejora in the poem, um, it's a, it, you can always call it just an interruption. Yeah. And it is that in, he's, and that, and you can apply that to what you've already said. It's just, it, you use it to back up your arguments already. You know, he's had this interruption in his own um, self-awareness. He's interrupted. Yeah, he's not absolutely. sure. Yeah. He's not sure of what he used to be sure of. Um, and you can easily just That's put great. in that the, that the, uh, the Sejora just... Mimics that mimics interruption that, yeah. he's got in his own thought process. And uh, that pretty much concludes what we have today. Uh, Em's just going to give us one final note on that, you know, kind of the unique nature of this within the anthology and how you can use this poem in a comparative sense. And off we go then. I think one thing we haven't probably touched on through any of our podcasts is the importance of power and conflict as we talk through. So, of course, we can liken a lot of Alex's comments on the existential crisis that this man suffers as a conflict between the man he wanted to be at war and the man he found himself being at war. Uh, we can talk about the conflict between the war he was promised through propaganda and the reality of the war he woke up to. We can talk about the power of the individual soldier versus the power of the government to control what an individual soldier does. Yeah. We can talk about his lack of power or autonomy in the poem. Yeah. So there are many things that we've discussed, the three of us, in this podcast, which really nicely link to both power and conflict. It's a lovely poem to compare to many others in the anthology. We've got an individual experience of war, so that like links to remains, mm -hmm. to poppies, Exposure. to the emigre. I'd say exposure and charge of library could almost be in sort of that contrast, actually. Mm -hmm. So the idea that here we have one man's individual, almost isolated experience of war versus the camaraderie that we kind of see in exposure mm -hmm. and that group... This good, this anonymity almost that yeah. we see in the Charge of the Light Brigade. Yeah. So I think it's, it's a great one to compare to all the poems. There's a good point you can make about identity here as well. We, they, yeah. Sometimes one of the more difficult ones to compare. So if you get a poem that's asking about the power of identity, this poem mm. really explores that. It does. He has that changing identity of the way yeah. that he sees himself. So that's just another one that you can Shifting point. through the stanzas. Yeah. Right. Well, that is uh, everything for today. So it's bye from me, Ted. Bye from me, Emily. And it's goodbye from me, Alex. Good luck Thanks with your vision. See you later, English nerds. Bye.